Welcome to the Imbibe Live Conversations podcast with Amy Parker and Cheryl Dunn. By tuning in, you are joining a community that will inspire you to increase balance, wellness, and joy in your life. We will offer expert information and insightful conversations to help us all on our journey to live more in vibe. For more information and articles, remember to also check out our website at invibelife.com. That's E-N-V-I-B-E-L-I-F-E.com. We're grateful that you are here. Hello, welcome to InVibe Life Conversations with Amy Parker and Cheryl Dunn. We are joined again today by our superstar friend, Dr. Denise Brown, and also Denise's two dogs. So we always have some dog action going on during the greater today even than most days. And so Denise came on a few months ago, yeah. and we talked about a little bit of everything, kind of about choosing your doctor and knowing different types of doctors. But today we're going to get into something that's actually been one of your specialties and passions, which has been palliative care and hospice and end-of-life care. Yep. And so just to start, tell everyone a little bit about you again in case they didn't watch that other podcast. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been an internal medicine doctor for a while now. Um, (laughs) Let's see, 25-ish years, I guess. And when I um, was in med school... My mom uh, died rather suddenly, tragically, and she died in the ICU, and she was 53 years old, and it was an absolute, the worst, and the best thing that ever happened to me, um, the worst, probably very obvious, um, the best, um, in that it kind of gave me a passion to make sure that to the extent I could possibly help, other people didn't have to die that way. Wow. And so it was a... It was a big, like, holy cow, sort of, you know, you think you have a plan in your mind of what you're going to do when you grow up, and then um, something comes along and changes your plan, Mm -hmm. and uh, that changed my plan. Wow. And so, then, when is it that you got into palliative care? So, basically, um, what ended up happening was my mom was, um, had this really weird side effect of a medication that caused her kidneys to shut down and all this stuff happened. And then she ended up getting septic. And that's when like a bacteria comes in and your body can't fight it off. Her immune system had been suppressed on purpose um, to try to help this thing. At any rate, what ended up happening was they, the young doctor came out to me and said, listen, your mom's not going to make it. We need to make her DNR. And like, it was very abrupt and very like, what the hell is happening right now? And I was so stunned that I had a natural kind of like, I think, knee-jerk reaction, which was, you know, who the blank are you to tell me, how dare you, you're going to do everything. Mm-hmm. And I um, just, I yelled back at him and I like yeah. reflected that energy, you know, because it was like a moment of crisis. And then I had a little time to like co- go back and reflect and recognize like he was upset because she was young and he couldn't do anything. And, uh, you know, all of these things that kind of were happening that were the real undercurrents of what was happening. And then what I responded to was like, Pah. and so what I realized was that um, I could do more to like help other doctors learn how to have these conversations differently and to take care of people differently and to talk about it at different times so that it wasn't at the moment of like peak chaos. 
chaos and emotion yeah. and all yeah. of that stuff. And so as I finished my training, um, that just became an area of real interest for me. And it was something that I kind of looked at and finished my residency and decided to kind of do more of. And, um, and it's been just the most rewarding part of my whole gig. I think that's great that you listened to that yeah. and made that shift. Oh, it was a big shift. Cause I had like plans of, uh, I had other plans of what yeah. I was going to do. And yeah. it was very ego driven. Yeah. And it was like, um, I think it was the bitch slap that my 20, three-year-old self probably really needed to learn. Otis is joining the chat. Here he is. Fascinating. Surprised he's not on my lap already. <laughs> but so, that probably makes you so good at what you do. It made me an infinitely better doctor than I think I ever would have been otherwise because um, I, you know, something like that kind of has to happen to you personally, I think, in order for you to really understand how you know, to really feel like what it's like to be on the other side mm-hmm. and then to take that and try to use it. And so what I ended up doing was taking that, working hard, doing my residency. I spent a lot of time on the, um, on the words that no one really wants to be on, like where people who have cancer or failed bone marrow transplants or whatever. But I really felt like it was kind of a sacred honor to be able to sit with those people and help them in the way that I could. And then when I finally really got to decide, like, what do I actually want to do? Um, started a practice very much in the hospital based with the real love of palliative care as the idea of, of doing that. And, and it's a bummer that even now, 20 years later, most of the conversations around palliative care and end of life end up happening in hospital settings. It would be ideal if they didn't. And we can talk about that. But um, because I've always dealt with sick people, yeah. I've always felt like that was part of what, you know, we had to talk about. That was that was part of what we needed to get through. It wasn't just about here's what your illness is today, but here's what your illness is today and what it means tomorrow and how are we going to plan for whatever's coming next. So unfortunately, I'm familiar with hospice and palliative care because I've lost both of my parents, including my father in my twenties. But what I do think is like, I realize now the things I didn't know when I was needing to make those decisions. So tell everyone the ABCs, what is palliative care? What is hospice? How are they different? What other terms should we know? Yeah. So I think, um, lots of misconceptions. You're right. And it, to me, it's always a tragedy when somebody gets put on hospice and then they die four days later. And that's like happens all the time, all the time. 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 And what's a bummer about, I mean, obviously it's a bummer because someone is, you know, not with us anymore. So let's set that aside. What's sad to me is that was a lost opportunity of six months or maybe more, more like a year where things could have been done in a different way with a different level of support, both for the patient themselves and for the family and friends around them. So I'm always like, it's a lot, you know, it kind of feels like a lost opportunity. So let's work backwards. So I think a lot of people kind of know like, oh, hospice is right when you're dying. So I'm going to beg to differ. Hospice is when a doctor thinks that you are in the last year of your life. No one knows that. I know. Nobody knows that. And quite honestly, we can even be more particular Let's say this, Medicare will pay for hospice when the doctor thinks that you're in your last year of life. That doesn't mean that you couldn't do it before. It just means that like it wouldn't necessarily be covered with Medicare. Um, So, so that's an, I think an important distinction. So that's hospice. And the idea of hospice is basically saying, I accept things as they are in terms of whatever my disease process is. 
Doesn't mean I necessarily have to be happy about it, but I understand that there's nothing I can do to necessarily reverse that. But what I can do is feel as good as possible for as long as possible with this irreversible thing. Here's a question. So the doctor has decided this is probably your last year. You can go into hospice. Medicare is going to pay for it. What if you live longer than a year? Does Medicare kick you out? Um, they can. And sometimes you have to kind of re-up. So you're absolutely right. And here's what's really cool about hospice. I don't have all the statistics to rattle off to you, but um, people live longer. The people who are enrolled in hospice typically live longer than the people who aren't, which is fascinating. Um, and then it really makes you start to question, you know, what are we doing? Maybe if yeah. we just try to make people feel better instead of fixing them, like we yeah. could be onto something. Okay, so that's hospice, and that would be the like sort of the tail end of the process. Then there's what we call a bridge to hospice. So that was would be something like, well, I don't know if it's a year, but it's coming up soon, and that's a different level of care. But you start to meet the hospice team. There's more social work involved. There's more family counseling involved. And so it's this kind of intermediate kind of thing, which is actually a really cool program. And I'm a huge fan of that because then you don't know, like, you yeah. know, yeah. and then there's palliative care and palliative care is really like, to me, the most um, compelling thing to do because what it's having you do is really kind of think ahead and plan for what is inevitable, but how do I want that to all happen? And so you can do great palliative care while you're actually still doing what we would call more traditional care modes, and they can kind of, you know, kind of cross one another. So as the palliative care is increasing and the traditional care options are decreasing, they can happen simultaneously, and it can be a very kind of natural transition. And so palliative care is, okay, yes, we've got, let's say, Let's say we have something like lupus and the medications aren't working for lupus. My body is attacking itself. I'm on these different medicines. Things are okay, but they're not, you know, we're not getting better. We're slowly getting worse. And the side effects of some of these medicines are becoming more of an issue than helping and whatnot. We might say, well, palliative care is a perfect time. We're going to start some palliative care. We're going to be working on your pain control and your nausea control and we might take off some of the traditional medicines because what we really want you to do is feel as good as you can. And if that means that your kidneys shut down a little bit faster or a little bit more quickly over time, we're okay with that. We're making conscious choices. And what I like the most about that is then you really are talking about things very explicitly and making decisions in advance so that you're not making decisions in emotion. So what's the difference between palliative care and this bridge to hospice? Um, to, to many extents, it's a insurance sort of dictated um, kind of uh, thing. So bridge to hospice will typically be a slightly different program. Not all insurances cover palliative care, which is maddening to mm -hmm. me. Maddening. Maddening to me. Um, but almost every, all Medicare will cover bridge to hospice. So it's, it, a lot of it are kind of arbitrary separations. Yeah. And if you are kind of thinking enough ahead to be talking about palliative care, then those transitions happen much more Easy. naturally. Smooth. Yeah, 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 for sure. Wow. No, okay. it's crazy. Let's, let's get a few other misconceptions out there or cleared up. So just going back to my personal story, when my father had cancer... And he was probably in his last year of life. Well, he was in his last year of life by the time we even had the diagnosis. 
He fought like crazy mm-hmm. till he couldn't fight anymore. Um, we had all different levels of rehab. He was finally ready to go home. He refused hospice. Mm-hmm. And the reason he refused hospice is because his impression and my mother's was if I accept hospice, I'm accepting this is the end and I can't get further medical care. So that is completely not true, but a very common misperception. So I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh, if I go on hospice, that means that I get shut in a dark room and no one's ever going to come and you know see me again. Like I'm, it's like, oh, well, can't help you anymore. Or if I need to call a doctor, I can't. I'm not allowed. Right. Is what he thought. Right. And um, that's totally not true. Um, and there's a lot of different gradations and conversation around hospice. So it depends on what it is you're going in to hospice for. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely not a one size fits all. So for example, though. So the most common diagnosis with, um, with hospice are typically your cancers or like Alzheimer's dementia is a very mm-hmm. classic and really something we should talk more about using hospice for. So you have this inevitable stair step of decline. It's just the way the body does. You go fine for, some, uh, for a while, something bad happens, you drop down a step. No matter how hard you try, no matter how great the care is, no matter what you do, you never get back up to where you were before. So you might go down, fall down a step. You might come back up, but you're never up to where you were before. And then you step down again, and then you step down again. And then you, and, and it often will take families or, or patients themselves several iterations of this stair step before it finally occurs to them that this is what's actually happening. So as the doctor or the nurse will hear things like, but she was waltzing three, you know, months ago. And, and I said, I'm really glad that she was, but she's, she wasn't waltzing yesterday. Mm-hmm. And she's not going to waltz tomorrow. So let's talk about that. Okay. So I'm glad you oh, bring this up for a variety of reasons. So first of all, like, yeah, with my father, it was clear and everyone knew it was coming. And he just wasn't willing. He viewed it as a character flaw to admit death or to admit defeat. But here's what I like that you brought up with the stair step. Um, after just with my father alone. And then I went through this again with my mother at both of their sides when they died, helped them through. Death is not a linear event. And I have told the phrase I've told to more people than I can count is death is a process. It is not an event. Mm -hmm. And I wish people knew that because I think people, and these aren't conversations we have. I wish people knew that because I think they, you know, have those television and movie bedside scenes Mm -hmm. in their mind and they think that's how it's going to go. And by the way, I've had all of those moments before. They didn't all occur in one. Oh, they didn't follow the timeline of the script. Exactly. And it might be one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back. Yep. And that's the emotional roller coaster, right? Mm -hmm. That is the natural dying process. And it is also what makes you doubt or question yourself and what you're doing yeah. if you don't understand yeah. that uh, i mean i can now with my medical background which we all know is nothing almost predict when i just hear someone say something mm-hmm. that's going on with oh, oh yeah that right. you know and, it, and it, it might be a month it might be a week it might be four months who knows if they right. have some extraordinary right. little peak but well the, the dying process is yeah. basically the same regardless of the reason that might have started it off, right? And that's particularly true as you get into the later phases. So for those of us who do this kind of work, you know, I can be like, oh, yep, you've got 
72 hours or oh you probably there's we're 48 or less or you know there there's a there is a kind of for the most part regular sort of set of occurrences that happen if you know what you're looking for um but what you just were talking about is the reason I feel so strongly about palliative care because if you could have if someone could have sat with your dad and had a conversation about how death isn't a failure and how it's the natural part of life and let's talk about what it means to you and what it means to your family if we could have had that conversation before the horse was out of the barn so to speak mm-hmm. then you end up having a very different experience right then instead of feeling like you're fighting with your father about what's going to work or what's not going to work we get to actually talk about it and so i say something like this to your dad i say well listen it seems like all of the usual medications aren't working anymore and this happens and here's why it happens and let me tell you what's going to happen next and some days you're going to feel great and some days you're not going to feel so great but there's nothing i can do to fix you all i can do is try to make you feel better and so let's talk about how we're going to focus on that and so it's not like you're saying we're not pretending like nothing's happening there's actually a lot more work that's being done so it's not an absence of care. It's a very mindful presence of care. It just looks a little bit different, and there's a lot more talking involved. And I, I want to say this because I, I, I'm making it all about me and my family and my experience, but I think people mm-hmm. ought to hear it because you don't know what's going to happen until you're in the middle of it. Yep. For the most part. Right. And because my father refused hospice, and he also refused further treatment or radiation, so he knew what he was doing, but didn't want to speak it out loud, right? The man, those last two or three weeks, suffered more than I can describe. Because just, you know, we had a home health care nurse coming Mm -hmm. in. She was lovely. She didn't have the good stuff. Right. He didn't, he, you know, lung cancer, so he suffocated to death. We had to watch it happen. There was no morphine. It is the most grueling thing I've ever witnessed. And that's like heartbreaking to me and a complete and total failure, I think, of the therapeutic bond that should Mm -hmm. exist between a doctor and a patient. Mm -hmm. And so... We were on our own. Of course. Well, and so... we We were on our own to the point where if hospice were there... I wouldn't have had to have police come and investigate the death, which we had to do right, when because he died. It would have been, because I had to have the justice right. of the peace issue, the death certificate, because it had to be investigated right. to see what happened. If hospice had been there, that wouldn't have had to have happened. And that that's was right. a lot for the family to go through yeah. on that last day, Oh, no, day that's, too. that's the worst. So then mm-hmm. so then they die, and then you're like, well, gosh, what it do I do now? And then you have to call, um, and then they have to come and investigate and you're like, but he's dying of stage four lung cancer and he died in his bed around with his family, but it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um, because it is a quote, unexpected a death report. at home. Like I said, people should just know this yeah. because being informed like this, then nine years later, fast forward with my mother, we overrode her right. on some things saying as a family, we can't go through that like that right. again. And we have to understand what we're dealing Mm -hmm. with here. And we have to make it easier on us and you. Hi, it's Amy. If you're enjoying the content you're hearing on this podcast, then Cheryl and I hope that you'll go check out our website at inviblife.com. On the website, you will find tons of articles, our archive podcast, links to our social media, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, all where you can find more information on curating the life you most want in order to live in vibe. We hope you'll check it out. And the, the sad thing is, is that almost 
every family Mm -hmm. has an experience Mm -hmm. that's bad like that. Mm -hmm. And, and that poor guy has, has given it up for the rest of them because then you never, ever, ever do that again. Which would make him happy actually Fair to enough. know that. Fair but, enough. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I, I just feel like it really could have been different. It, it could have been different that, when we I, sat down and talked about it. We yeah. know it could have been different. Right. And that's why it's important to me. And by the way, the last two weeks of my mother's life were a beautiful experience and yeah. an inpatient. So talk about that too. Okay. So yeah. in hospice, you can have inpatient hospice or you can have hospice that comes to your home. Yep. So, um, and this, I, I say this word because it's the word that gets used, but I don't want it to be misconstrued in any way. Um, the custodial care mm-hmm. is often, um, makes the difference between whether someone can go home or whether we try to find somewhere for someone to stay, to have quote inpatient services, uh, which I'm are very say, hard honestly, to find. It can also be, is there a bed yes. for her? Which so, is what we so I was going to say, that's the yeah. number one issue is availability. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. just, there really isn't a lot of mm-hmm. things. Then there are places like um, some board and care homes, some assisted living developments, some skilled nursing facilities that have what we call a hospice waiver. So they're able to have hospice come in and supplement the care that's being given at that facility. So that's an in-between place. So there's, let's say this, there's inpatient hospice where it's just a hospice Mm -hmm. unit. Which those are some of the most incredible people. Yeah, like absolutely I can't spectacular. Even describe these people, to um, but very difficult to find. Super scarce, yeah, right? Yes. Then you've got the sort of like, okay, well, we have a hospice waiver, and we're at a skilled nursing facility. That's a kind of an in between, or there's an I'm going to go home and I'm going to have um, hospice care. And again, this comes down to Medicare and what is covered. So the things that are covered by Medicare for hospice is the nurses' visits, and they might be multiple times a day. The social worker, the chaplain, all of these things are covered. Here's what's not covered. Change of the bedpan, doing the bath, okay. um, what we call custodial care. So some families have other resource mm-hmm. and they're able to do that, whether they're providing it themselves or they're um, hiring someone to do it, but some people can't. And so there's no right or wrong. It's like what makes the most sense for your family given where where you're at. But those are the main um, differences between one thing or another. And um, that care is expensive. It is very that expensive. That care is very expensive. Very and it can also be, so I know from expensive. our experience with very my mother, it was also the number of days they thought she had left because she was moved mm-hmm. from palliative care mm-hmm. at MD Anderson, just put yep. it out there. To inpatient care at Houston Hospice, which again, yep. wonderful place, huh? and it's because they thought she only had a couple of days, right? And, left, and, and they had a bed, right? And they had a bed, and the logistics of it getting ended up sometimes being two weeks because she had a bounce once she got there. Of course she did, because mm-hmm. they always do. Because yeah. finally, here's what happens: finally, you have enough medicine so that your breathing is eased. Mm-hmm. You have enough medicine so that you're no longer in pain. Your your body's fight or flight, that adrenal sort of mm-hmm. overwhelming cortisol thing finally gets to relax. Yeah. And so the patients usually actually have a little bit of a hospice surge. Mm-hmm. And and the people who do this work for a living know. Right. And we say to you, what a gift. This is the blessing. Don't miss this. Oh. This is yeah. it. When everyone says, I'm hoping for a miracle, I say, well, it's happening right now. Sit yeah. down. Sit yeah, down and be present yeah, and for was, the miracle. It was. So that's why... I mean, your story is exactly why the difference between your dad and your mom's experience Mm -hmm. is exactly why this stuff matters. Mm -hmm. So people who are really good at it are oncologists who get people, you know, sort of they're, they're more inclined 
to get people set up with it. People that are, can be tricky are um, your heart disease, kidney disease, diabetes, right? Because there's always one more procedure we can try, and the answer is no, there really isn't. I mean, come on. But but we, they have a, we, we have a tendency to have more difficult issues with, not only with the physicians who practice that kind of medicine, but trying to move those people into the next thing. Yeah. And then the biggest, really the biggest one is with dementia. And um, because um, that can be really hard to deal with because there isn't a f- necessarily a physical manifestation of the illness the way that someone's got a tumor or, you know, there's, it's, it's harder to deal with, but it's just as important. Um, and people with dementia have a, have a very clear stair step of decline and a fairly predictable trajectory. And if you know what you're looking for, you can have a, a very open conversation about it with the family and say, well, when this happens, here's what we're going to do, or here's what, what might be better for us to consider doing. Does that make, does that make it sense? Does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When mommy stops to eat, stops eating, that's not the time we need to put a tube in her tummy to feed her. She is telling us mm-hmm. to the best of her ability, I don't want to eat anymore. And it's like, you have to kind of learn how to reinterpret some things. So let's go from that, unless you have something else you want to say first. Because you mentioned a DNR, mm-hmm. and now you just mentioned putting a tube in the tummy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the okay. life yeah. decisions and documents. So what a DNR is, for those who don't know, is a do not resuscitate right. order, which thank goodness I had I'm an attorney in a past life, especially had drafted one with my father a few weeks beforehand, and that did save us in that police investigation situation, the fact that we had it, or they would have tried to resuscitate the man and take him to the emergency room. So So a DNR, how valuable is that? Yeah. So let's talk about a whole bunch of stuff because everybody gets wrapped up around the the DNR, which is one component Mm -hmm. of the advanced directive. In mine, it was, it was a big, it's a biggest. So there's a couple, there's do not resuscitate. There's do not intubate. Technically, you can break those two things mm-hmm. apart in the legal document. Um, then there's a, a, a little section that you can check for IV fluids and IV antibiotics. Okay, So on an advanced directive form, those are sort of the four big ones. Okay. And then the fifth one is hospital transfer. Okay, So if, if you're sitting down to talk about advanced directives, you want to sit down with someone who's going to take the time to explain each and every one of those components. You're right, the do not resuscitate is probably the one that you see on Grey's Anatomy or whatever, but it's probably the most common. What that means is, if my heart were to stop, I would not want CPR, I don't want the paddles, I don't want a medication to try to fix my heart. That's the do not resuscitate. Okay, okay, okay. and then there's a do not intubate. The do not intubate is if my breathing stops or I'm unable to breathe on my own, I I want a tube in my throat to be hooked up to a mechanical ventilation. 20 something years ago, I combined those together. And most of the time they are. There's a very few people Mm -hmm. that are one and not the other. There are some rare instances where you might be do not intubate, but go ahead and resuscitate if I have a known cardiac thing and my pacemaker's not working. You know, there are some rarities where you might actually separate. But you're totally right. For the most part, 
And I think colloquially, when people say do not resuscitate, they mean both. So I think you're 100% correct there. And that helps because um, if you have an old aging parent, um, you should have this um, advanced directive filled out. And this is going to sound crazy and maybe morbid, but you should tape it to your refrigerator because in the event oh that someone else calls 911, the paramedics are taught to look at the fridge to see what the rules are. Wow. And then they, that doesn't mean they're not going to do anything. That doesn't mean like everyone just stands around and says, oh, he doesn't seem well. Um, but it means there's some <laughs> limits of, of what it is that they're not going to do. And I think that's actually the most important thing. There is part of my French a shit ton of stuff I can do for you before I have to intubate you. So it doesn't mean everyone's like, oh, well, let's just sit here and see what happens. Um, it means I'm going to do what I can do up until a point. And that's the point. So that kind of gets us into the IV fluids and feeding tube and IV antibiotics. So in the hospice community, a lot of us will say, well, I don't want to do IV stuff. It's invasive. I'm poking I'm all this. But I can give medicine by the tush. I can give medicine under the tongue. Even every now and then, I can give it under the skin, which is not very painful. And I've got a lot of tricks in my bag that are not IVs in the arm right. and or antibiotics. So my thing about the antibiotics and whatnot is, if you can swallow the pill or I can give it to you in the tushy, then yeah, let's give it a go. If that's not going to work, then your body is already telling me something and I'm going to listen to your body. And I think that's the phrase that I use over and over again. We're going to try this out and we're going to listen to his body. His body is going to tell us and then we're going to respect his body enough to listen to it. And that's the difference. And I like, I just, I have to put this pitch out there and we just talked about, we, we really need to get an attorney on next season. This is one of our yeah. last podcasts of season two to talk about, the different components of a comprehensive legal package yes. for each family. Um, this, which by the way, can bring you more peace of mind and sense of wellness Absolutely. than so many things you have no idea yeah. for us. It, it has, but also that need to, you know, pick your designated um, decision maker mm -hmm. in medical decisions. And those of you out there realize that when your kids are 18 years old, they need to have it too. Everyone does. You need to have it done because once they're legal adults, you think, oh, I can make the decision to put them on life support when they get in that car wreck, but it depends where you are. It depends on the state. Um, and it depends the, on the state and sometimes the hospital. Yeah. So the next of kin stuff can be very tricky. And um, you may not want to have to go through the hoops. Correct. You have the piece of paper. Yeah. You don't the have piece of paper is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And so you actually, I mean, you need a power of attorney like you would need one for real estate or this, you know, any of that. But then you also need a power of attorney for health care. Um, and, um, and then ideally you have an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, particularly if they're living alone, you post it and it's there. I mean, obviously if they're in like a, you know, like an assisted living or something that's, it's on file. But you know, if they're, if, if mom and dad are living by themselves and they're at home, just, just stick it on the side of the refrigerator. It doesn't need to be obtrusive, but you just want to make sure that everybody knows what's happening. That is such a vital piece of information that nobody knows. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah. Yep. No. Then, so then I think what I really would say about the legal stuff, and maybe we can all, when you bring somebody on, we can all sit and talk about it. What I really love 
about getting that stuff together is it, you're doing it in a way that's ahead of time. And that's what this all boils down to is like, what can I talk about ahead of time? And, you know, people be like, oh, well, I don't want to plan my funeral, but, oh, actually, I'd really like them to play this song. Right. Write it down. Yeah. Um, you know, like, yeah. so then you can start to kind of talk about this stuff. I think, like, when people are afraid to talk about dying, um, that's when it gets done really poorly. And if we just talk about it, because it's going to happen, um, then we can sort of say, like, I want Into the Mystic by Van Morrison playing when we're walking out. Like, I don't know where that is or what happens, but, like, that's my song. And my so kids know funny. that. I love it. Also fine. Like, you think it's weird, but like my kids know all of the songs that I want at my funeral. They know what, what matters. They know where my ashes are going. Like, I don't plan on dying anytime soon, but I got to tell you, when I do, everyone's going to know what to do with or do with it. That's big because there are a lot of people afraid to talk to it, talk about it. Right. Then my father-in-law just passed, and my in-laws are such planners. And so when my father-in-law passed, my husband went to his mom and was like, "What's the plan?" We don't have a plan. Yeah. They plan for everything else. They plan their cruise. And they plan their vacation. Yeah. And they vacationed all year long. Right. So we were just, I mean, literally I had told clients, I said, oh, I'm sure he passed, he passed yesterday. I'm sure there's a plan. They were such planners. They had everything to a T and to know there was no plan. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's more common than, than, than not really. Yeah. Um, and again, I just think it's one of these things. I mean, it'll be interesting to watch as the boomers kind of get older and older. And as we are kind of sandwiched between our children and yes. our parents, we're the ones who have to kind of, I think, to Not the extent we can, kind of nudge them in the direction and be like, hey, I understand this makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable too. But I want you to give me the gift of peace of mind for later. Can you do that for me? It's really hard to argue with and when you're also, talking to your parent. Can you make me feel better in the future by having this conversation with me now? And also help me to honor you yes. what you want. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. So I think that to me is the thing. Um, your dad didn't want to upset you. He didn't want you to think that he was never not going to be there. And the, mm -hmm. so like everyone has this baggage. And so you say, hey, I understand that this is a scary time. I'm scared too. I'm going to feel less scared mm -hmm. if we can talk about this. That's kind of how we did the DNR when we did. Yeah. Because I had to say, so if this or this would happen, do right. you want them putting a tube down your throat? And he said, hell no. It's like, then we need to do yeah. this now. And, and now I feel, I feel more comfortable. And so I think you just, you know, and everybody has a different relationship with their parents or what, you know, like, but whatever it is that you can sort of like get at, then I think you can, I, I don't want to say use it, but like, come at it from that angle. Like mm -hmm. you, you've always protected me. You've always tried to, you know, mm -hmm. keep me safe. And like, here's how you can do this now. It's different, but you're still showing me how much you love me by being willing to have this conversation with me. The last thing I would say is there are some cultural differences in around death and dying mm -hmm. that I think it's really important to be aware of. And like, there are some cultures where dying in the home is considered incredibly unlucky um, and so you have to be, you know, at, and, and that's more, you know, probably for the doctors and the nurses and stuff, taking care of people to know. Um, but, uh, you just have to, you know, you kind of have to expect and respect, um, what those differences. But, um, 
you know, I think when you just talk to anyone and say, well, you know, if you're going to write down how you wanted to die, there's pretty much everyone wants to die of old age in their sleep. You know, I've not, I've very met, met very few people who wouldn't sign up for that. And so, you know, when the time comes, it's like, okay, well, let me help you make sure that we get as close to that as we can. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. There you go. I really wish everyone could, would, will listen to this. Because, yeah. I mean, you don't need to know it till you need to know it, but you never And then you're like, crap, why didn't... Yeah, exactly. And you're not in your best oh, mental no. or emotional mm-mm, state mm-mm. when you need to know it or have thought right. about it. Also. And I think that's that's the real um, thing is like, however you can do it in advance in the... And, and I mean, it's an emotional topic no matter what, but if you can take the crisis aspect out of the emotion and really get to the like here's why I love you and here's all the things that I've appreciated about you and here's why I want to honor you in this way. Like that if you can do that ahead of time, then you get to go right to your mom's experience in, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, kind of what, what happened to my mom mm-hmm. or my dad. And so I guess just to close the loop, after this guy told me this and I yelled at him, I went outside, I laid under a tree, I looked up at the, watched the leaves for a while and I knew that she needed to go and it had to happen and so I walked back in and I said, here's what we're going to do. Now, obviously, I knew a lot more than your average right, exactly. person. I had to convince my poor 53-year-old father that this was the day he was going to lose his wife and here was why. But then I said, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. And if you ever fucking talk to another patient like that, I will come back and haunt you. And he was like, fair enough. you know." And I think he recognized like he had done a really bad job too. And yeah. so... I got everyone together. We all stood at the bedside. We, one by one, we turned all the pressers that were supporting her blood pressure. Um, we turned all the monitors off and we all held hands and, and she died. And and, um, and it was good at the end. It was good. But it was, it was, movie. It was good because I fought for it. Kind of, I yeah. really, I fought tooth and nails to make sure that she was at least going to have a moment of peace right at the end. So, um yeah, and, and I was informed, and it still happened to me. So mm-hmm. there you go. Well, thank you for yeah. coming and sharing everything you yeah. know and are with us again and for sharing your personal stories. Yes, you know, dying doesn't doing have that. to be horrible. I've actually had some of my best conversations with people who have sort of sat down and like the hospice nurses, they all know, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there is no truth like the truth that comes out of somebody who knows they're on a limited time span and which honestly is a gift that all of us should sort of recognize like today's the day yeah it's wow. pretty cool big stuff yep really big stuff well thanks yeah yeah can't wait to talk to you again this is awesome my dogs and the dogs took a nap nobody even noticed <laughs> so check out this podcast go check out the last ask dr denise podcast we had last fall we'll link them both in the show notes and um thank you for joining us Thank you for joining our conversation today. For more information or to learn more about InVibe Life, we hope you'll visit us at www.invibelife.com. You can find links and show notes for this episode on our podcast page. Please like, follow, and leave a review for our podcast. We hope that you will listen again soon.